you remember from uh, Kingdom of Heaven, Lucas, with the it's like a I don't know a mural or something on the wall with the skeletons there. Quad sumus hac eritis, something like that. Such as we are, you shall be. Did you know there was a commentary track for the Halloween tree? No, I didn't. I think there was a second release of the movie that was like longer or something, like a director's cut kind of a thing. Oh, I didn't know that. The it, the weird thing is that like the commentary track is really hard to find because it was only included on a Laserdisc release. Hmm. Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we cover the historical iterations of Halloween, animation, and the creation process of Ray Bradbury's The Halloween Tree. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. But they were a bit uh, sunken into the recesses of his ocular cavity. Deep sunken It's like a raccoon. That's what you were tracking? Yes. And that's what you chose for cut dummy. <laughs> I just want to die! I let you in. I let you in. Whoa, what if I gave you uh, something of value? Say, a year of my life. <gasps> you do that for him? Yes, a year from the end of my life. It's yours if it would save Pip. What precious year from the far burned out candle end of your life, eh? To every man upon this earth that cometh sooner or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his father and the temples of his gods? So it's, uh, it's Halloween and we are doing a new episode, finally using the motivation of the timelines for a holiday to get stuff done. And the film of the week is The Halloween Tree. So I guess, I don't know, do you want to introduce the film at all or your exposure to it? See here, Lucas, this is a longer limited edition. Author's preferred text of the novel was published in 2005, which included the screenplay. So it's a story by Ray Bradbury, and, and the novel originated in 1967 as a screenplay for an unproduced collaboration with animator Chuck Jones. Mm-hmm. Should I take that to mean that like the novel was written with the intent of it being a screenplay, or was it adapted from a screenplay, or adapted from a novel to become a screenplay? It's actually both. So it's, it's kind of a, a long story. I mean, I think you said the, the novel was published late 60s. Yeah. And uh, the film came out in, what, the early 90s? Yeah, that sounds right. I think it was 96. around 92, maybe. Oh, 96. No, so, I think it was a little um, earlier. The way Bradbury tells it, right, is he's long had a fascination with Halloween. It's his favorite holiday. And he, him and his daughters, they used to have like a weekly paint night. And one year he painted the Halloween tree, right? This tree with these jack-o'-lanterns on it. And he just had it like in his house as a piece of artwork for a while. And one year around Halloween time, right after uh, the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown had been on air, he met Chuck Jones and they apparently don't like, it's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. <laughs> like mm. Bradbury in particular says that, you know, it, it's, you spend this whole movie building it up and then you don't ever show the great pumpkin. It's like shooting Santa Claus is what he said. 
So the, the two decided to make a proper Halloween film. So Chuck asks him, would you want to make a picture? We, we do an animated picture. And uh, Bradbury like goes home and gets his painting and comes back and he's like, let's do the Halloween tree. And uh, so Bradbury goes away and he, he writes the original screenplay back in the 60s. And then as they were, were trying to get it produced, the animation studio that Chuck Jones was at was shuttered. Then like kind of just animation was becoming less popular from the way Bradbury tells it. And then they, they tried like shopping it around to different places, but nobody wanted to pick it up. And so he just, just decides to write a novel based off the screenplay he wrote and he publishes the novel. And then, you know, fast forward a couple decades and a guy comes to him and asks and is wanting to produce the Halloween tree. And so he, he then writes a new screenplay. So he wrote the first, he did the painting and then he wrote a screenplay off of that. And then he wrote a novel off the screenplay and then he wrote a screenplay off the novel. (laughs) (laughs) And then it finally got made. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you like the point of personal trivia. I saw the movie just in school in back in high school when we just watched it one day in whatever class that would have been. And if it hadn't been for that, like, it wasn't not on my radar at all. Or, and I don't think it would have been if I hadn't seen it just by happenstance. So I think uh, people that, I, I assume like they're fans of it still. It wouldn't surprise me. But it's definitely, I imagine one of those movies where like, you could ask someone about it and they would have no idea what you're talking about. And if you were like a child in the early 90s, you, it might be like a favorite movie of yours. But it's one of those that if you haven't seen it, you just wouldn't know about it. Yeah, I I definitely feel like there's there's a small fan base. But yeah, it's I don't know, it's kind of hard to find. I I guess people who are fans of Bradbury are probably familiar with it and I'm sure there's people that know the the novel. But I definitely feels like a, a mostly forgotten film. Maybe some uh Trekkies or something that are big big fans of Leonard Nimoy. Oh, uh, yeah. I want to see of Spock. Carapace <laughs> clavicle mound shroud. <laughs> so, like, a real over- quick overview of the plot is that there's a there's a little boy what got sick with appendicitis, and he's a big Halloween fan. And so he has three friends that were going to his house to go trick-or-treating, and they go on a kind of a mystical adventure in trying to chase after him because they see, like, his kind of ghost running around carrying the pumpkin. And they just go through different points in history that are nominally related to Halloween and uh, ultimately meet up with Pip at the end, the, the little sick boy. And I don't know how accurate the histories are, to be honest with you. Do you know about that, Lucas? <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like they're they're mostly accurate. But are they accurate in like a popular sense where like if you dig into it, you could find like historians that would like disagree for like X and Y reasons, but... Yeah, does, if that makes any sense, like sometimes if you uh, like examine history, like with nuance, it kind of falls apart. Kind of the broad brush, like history narratives that you would contain within like a <laughs> a ninety minute film for children. Well, I mean, I'm sure you could find historians <laughs> that'll disagree with most anything, <laughs> most any historical claim. I think, I guess, the main point of contention would be whether how strong the tie is between death celebrations and Halloween, right? Because kind of the whole premise is that Halloween is 
just the modern day reincarnation of how humanity confronts death and the idea of dying because you have Pip who's on his deathbed and his friends trying to save him and then Mount Shroud is kind of a representative of death and you go through all of these different time periods and it's supposed to be the history of Halloween right you you go way back uh the the novel actually has an ape man character um so the novel has its eight boys and no girl they have like more characters obviously but it's less character driven i i feel like the film the characters are kind of a weak point because it's all about the spectacle of halloween but in the novel it's even more pronounced that really the only character that has any lines of import or any attempt at characterization really is tom skelton and then it's tom and the boys it's tom and the boys it's just kind of he I don't know if you'd really lose much if it was just Tom, right? Going after. Nope. So it starts with like cavemen and the invention of fire and saying that like the fire scares away the night and it sets the stage for like man to think deeper thoughts. And then you have uh, the Egyptians and the idea of Osiris and the moon killing the sun every morning. And then you're afraid if the sun's going to come back. And then you go to um, the... Romans, now you go to the Britons with um, their god of the harvest, and then the Romans come and kill them. And I feel like you maybe get a hint of that in the film. Uh, in the commentary, Track Bradbury kind of talks about how he wanted to show the the historical evolution of beliefs, um, and I think you get a hint of that with uh, around the Notre Dame area where you're dealing with the the Britons and the Druids, but the Druids, are, I feel like are kind of glossed over. And then the, you spend maybe some more time with the witches and like the gargoyles coming to Notre Dame. But any, it's a little more explicit that you have like the Britain Druids and then they're killed off by the Romans. And then the Romans are killed off by Christianity. And then kind of Christianity falls out of favor for a more uh, like celebratory idea of Halloween. Um, and then I guess, and then you kind of, it doesn't really follow like a strict evolution because then you go over to Mexico, which is kind of like just <laughs> appended on. <laughs> Mexican but Halloween. I feel like most of the stuff is is based in an accurate view of history. It's just how how strong is the link that these are all the same celebration and how much is Halloween a celebration of the dead? Well, that's because history is a series of lies that we agree upon. <laughs> Napoleon Bonaparte, a big part of the movie is um, kind of the childhood friendship. It kind of follows that formula of every time they revive Pip's spirit, it's through like saying what he does for them. Like he doesn't make fun of the uh, of Ralphie for wearing glasses or he took the fall for the fat kid. What was his name? Wally for uh, setting off fireworks. Is that... I don't know. It sounds like you're a little more familiar with the text it's based on. Is that like a through line through the um, novel as well? Uh, no, I, I'd say that theme is is more developed in the film, which is is probably for the better because I, I do feel like, from my point of view, I, I think the novel probably does a, a better job of the didactic point of the story. 
I feel like it, it's a little more cohesive as a history of Halloween, even though there there is still the same issue of how, how much link is there between these different celebrations. And also could be like more explicit, the, the relation to Halloween in the text of the novel. Uh, but in the film, I feel like it does a better job at developing, in the words of Bradbury, it's a, it's a story about love, right? And uh, that love conquers death is really the premise of the film. I guess going off the, the final scene where they, where Tom offers, you know, a year of his life. Because there's, there's not really, well, like I said, Tom's really the only character. Even Pip is, is much less characterized in the novel. Mm-hmm. He pretty much just says, help, come find me, meet me. And you don't really get into anything outside of that initial monologue about him being the greatest boy ever born. Uh, just the ghost of Halloween present, maybe. <laughs> oh, and I guess here's one thing. I guess we have talked about adaptations a couple times um, on the podcast. But one thing I thought was also intriguing about differences between the novel and film is the, I guess, the metaphor of the Halloween tree because when I watched the film, I kind of felt that Mount Shroud was like a t- some type of, of reaper of souls, right? And the Halloween tree was like each pumpkin represents a soul that he's harvested, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a general consensus, but I feel like it is supported by the film, right? And the fact that like Pip stills his pumpkin back and then it, it's gone from the tree when Pip is returned to life. But in the the novel, um, well, first off, Mount Shroud is more of a, I guess, active antagonist in that the novel kind of feels like he sets up the whole parade through the history of Halloween in order to get them to give away years of their life because he's the one that suggests it. He's like, oh, if you if you want to save your friend, there's one way you can do it. Give me a year from your life. Whereas in the in the film, it I think it as we were talking earlier, it it's kind of transmuted into a thematic statement on the power of of love over death by Tom thinking up a way to save Pipkin uh, yeah. through that great sacrifice. Uh, probably because I guess if we're really gonna pick apart like a a movie that's an hour long made for children, you know, for for that, that kind of target audience, like. What's what's his motivation in spending time with the children? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting point. When they initially show up, the film Mount Trout is annoyed with them, right? Yeah, They're, well, yeah, he, he tries to time. shoot them away. <laughs> I don't know. I, I kind of thought he just wanted to show them like why they were dressed the way they were dressed. I don't know. I guess uh, that was kind of enough to, to jump into it. Uh, on the point of, you know, how fair is it to, to pick it to, to pieces? Uh, one thing that I found really interesting that I wanted to touch on was the creative process and writing, uh, which is something that Bradbury focused a lot of his time um, in his commentary on kind of how, how he went about writing the Halloween tree and presumably his writing process in general and kind of maybe why the Halloween tree isn't the film to... Uh, dissect intellectually. So uh, one one quote I have from him is, 
And if the Halloween tree works at all, it's because I worked passionately with my intuitive self and never let my intellect get in the way of having fun. When a thing is finished, when you do a scene, when you write a half an hour of a screenplay or three chapters of a novel, it's best not to know what you're doing till it's finished. And then you look at it and say, does that work? Was that fun? And if it worked, if it was fun, you leave it in. And that was something he came to touch on multiple times was... He, he wrote the film intuitively and not intellectually. So mm -hmm. he talked about like how he had to solve problems as he got, as he advanced through the scenes of the, the screenplay. Um, but he, he didn't want to solve them intellectually. It was a intuitive problem solving. So for example, uh, with the flight, how they fly to different areas and time periods, he wanted to, to find uh, novel ways of them flying so it's not you know just uh, a kite every time they you know they build a kite they fly on Mount Shroud's cape they fly on the gargoyles they fly on the broomsticks and they're actually there's different modes of travel in the novel which I thought was interesting but talking about um, intuitive problem solving when it came to flight he said we're always looking for texture we're looking for change we're looking for imagination and he wanted, you know, those those visuals or, or something. I don't know. I, I felt like listening to him talk, he was all about trying to capture a sense of like whimsy and wonder and just everything that he liked and found appealing. He's like, let's throw this in here. This is this is going to be cool. You know, building Notre Dame with your feet is cool. Building a kite out of <laughs> carnival posters is cool. And they're kind of all just like moments from his life that he collects. And then... uh finds a way to express them through his writing. I think the whimsy of it does carry through and make a really enjoyable film. Because if you notice, if you, if you were inclined to like kind of break it down and look at the structure of it, it has like kind of a beginning and an end that seem to mirror each other. It seems very symmetrical, very formulaic as they travel through um, like one encounter after the next, like from like a general moving from one scene to the next from the narrative setting it up. And I don't know like how well defined like a style of the sixties is, we'll say, like as far as the sixties go and, and probably in a sense thematically related to, to the story. Um would be like like for me just the Twilight Zone. I really did like the like the narration of from Ray Bradbury that was in the film that was kind of setting up each period of time that they would visit just because of the prose and and it felt like it added to the charm of it in the same way that those older movies do even though like this was written or produced or or published or released in in the uh early 90s yeah on on the the prose i i, I do think that there is uh i don't know the the prose feels like poetic and fantastical in a way that matches the the tone of, of the film really well. And there's even like sections of uh, the novel that are just lifted directly. Uh, like a lot of the intro of, you know, this small town that isn't so big that you can't see the forest, but isn't so small that you can't like, that you get lost in the wilderness. Um, and then a lot of uh, like, when he introduces Pip, like just talking about some of the holidays like the lines are, are directly from the novel. And I, I've never really read Bradbury outside of, you know, Fahrenheit 451 back when I was in school. But 
and it probably is in part due to the the nature of the the novel right it geared towards children and it's supposed to be this halloween tale i found the prose to have like a kind of uh repetitiveness where like he would state the same thing multiple times but like not not in a bad way right it, it was to, <laughs> to emphasize it and to kind of like color it in so he's like they they scrambled climbed and clawed their ways up the stairs or something like that but obviously better because he's ray bradbury and i'm not <laughs> yeah what is that called in like poetry maybe or it's like repetition it's not aphorism but i think it starts with an a i don't know i only know alliteration but that's for the same sound anaphora that's the word lucas i, I don't think it's it's probably not exact because i think anaphora would be like like an exact repetition of a phrase but hmm. anyways maybe before i forget though because i want to say that because i think it kind of relates to what you said before i don't know like if the origin of it or anything but like he is from illinois and it is set in the midwest so i wonder how much of it is like autobiographical or just in, in maybe a very broad sense of the word just like um you know, like not a met. I don't know. I guess I'll just leave it at that. It, yeah, it's it's very much inspired by his life, especially if you you listen to him talk about um, like how he chose what to put in. A lot of it comes from his own fascinations, and he talks about like from like a young age, he had a, like a an interest in Halloween and in death, and just I feel like a lot of the the concepts are just things that he's interested in, uh, like Notre Dame and, and gargoyles and the Druid priests, mummies in Egypt. And he, he talks a lot about um, growing up, how he loved the old horror films, like the original Mummy and... Rob Stoker. Like the Wolfman stuff. Um, and he would always go to the cinema to see them. And uh, I guess just kind of... Uh, his, his own interests are brought to life in the film. But he also mentions that he kind of goes throughout his life collecting metaphors. And I, I feel like that's interesting and it provides a lot of the, uh, I guess, the substance of the film. But I, I do wish that there was more connective tissue. I, I think the film is fun and I enjoy, um, you know, it's very autumnal. You've got like all the leaves and stuff. It's colorful. It's, it's a, I think whimsical is, is a great word. Uh, you brought up whimsy before, and I think that's probably the most apt description of the film. Uh, but I do, I did, I don't know. I just get to the end and I wish there was, I guess, some more thematic tissue or something. I wish it felt a little more substantive. What are the, the metaphors of the film, if any? If that interests you in talking about, if not, we can talk about something else. There are no metaphors in it. Oh, it's okay. just about a guy cool. that hates a fish. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm actually going to pivot away from that. Um, but maybe going back to uh, kind of to what extent is it is it autobiographical? Um, so in the novel, like I said, it's it's a group of eight boys and Bradbury mentioned that in the film they had a girl and he he says oh that was I think a, produ a producer's note and he's like oh yeah we, we should add a girl because uh they sell and 
<laughs> but uh, he says he he's really glad that they did because she adds she's a great character and she she adds a lot to the story. But growing up, the none of the boys you know in Illinois would want to hang out with girls, right? It's, it's their I, I think they're eleven in the in the Halloween tree, mm-hmm. and so it, it's not cool, you know, to hang out with girls. Um, and then. Like the the kite that's made out of the carnival posters, uh, he he tells a story about um, him like looking at carnival posters. You were, you were gonna say something? Probably that it's like it, isn't it? Where there's all the all the boys and then the one girl there. It's probably oh, where he got the I've idea seen from. That or read Stephen it. <laughs> ripped it off from Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the way it went. <laughs> but um, so. Yeah, you have like the the carnival posters and kind of a representation of his idealized uh, childhood, but also like with Notre Dame, how they build the cathedral. He tells a story. One of his favorite authors is Robert Louis Stevenson, but he talks about how he was reading a a novella or something from him, and there's a point where a character reaches a staircase and he climbs up it, and the staircase just ends the staircase to nowhere and he's like well that was disappointing and from like that point on i was kind of turned off from the rest of the book and so now i'm going to finish it the way it should be finished so there's just this rubble and you just keep walking up the staircase and you build the whole a uh, chapel of notre dame just by by walking into the air and then i i guess a big thing to me something i wanted to touch on was um the mexican mummies um, and he talks about how, as a young man, he traveled to Mexico with a friend and spent, I think, a month or two just traveling the Mexican countryside. And uh, so that's like where you get all of the Day of the Dead and the candy skulls and um, nice. in particular, the, the Mexican mummies, because he had a very impactful experience visiting Guanajuato, um, the catacombs of Guanajuato, where uh, they there are these... Uh, I, they even mentioned it in the film, right, that the, the mummies are here because they couldn't afford to pay them the rent for the catacomb. Yeah. It freaked him out, and he wanted to leave, like, the day after visiting the catacomb. And he wound up writing six uh, short stories, all being derived from that experience. The two through lines of the film are the power of, of love and the the love and friendship that the the group of friends all has for Pip that's ultimately his salvation and then also just kind of that cultural examination of how we confront death and in in the novel it's a little more on the nose about i guess it kind of indicts us as like modern society today where we don't have that same view of death oh. like the the egyptians and the mexicans and all of these people um throughout the novel they're bringing food for their dead and you know they're they're preparing them for an afterlife and they're kind of i think even it's a line in the film that every day for them is halloween i don't know i i feel like uh tom skelton's character it's like oh well it's sad that we lost this and and they're they have like a a better understanding of death than we do Mm -hmm. which i thought was interesting Oh, buddy, it's like the death of Ivan Ilyich. A little some Leo Tolstoy philosophy in there. I'm reading that, but I don't remember what it's about or anything about it. Really, because well, it's about the guy that's dying, right? And the romantic, and like the romantic, uh, like peasant character that 
is like the only one that is willing to be with him as he's dying because people just kind of don't want to think about death it happens to someone mm. else but not to me <laughs> i think that that's very much one of the the points of the halloween tree where it can be right obviously it's art and you can take away what you want from it yeah but i i guess to me it's kind of interesting that idea of the mummies of guanajuato and i was thinking about when he was uh, listening to bradbury tell the story about seeing these bodies and like it, it becoming a, a tourist destination, right? You, you go and pay your uh, 20 pesos and you get to walk through and look at these 104 mummies lining the hallway. You know, they have like wire string them to the wall. And, you know, there's a, in, in the novel, at least there's a matador and there's a businessman and there's these uh, like poor beggars and just all of these people who are kind of forgotten by even their loved ones, right? There was nobody left to... Uh, pay the the catacomb fees so they're strung out to dry and now they've become like i don't know like a, a sideshow thing and it made me think about the capuchin crypt in uh, rome which is uh i believe it's a a crypt from franciscan monastery but there's all of these bodies and at some point you know like 500 or 600 years ago there's a little debate about who did it, either a, a priest there at the the monastery or a passing artist who stayed there and then as like his his payment for letting for for letting them stay uh he created there's these three rooms an art exhibit made out of human remains so there's designs on the walls and ceiling made out of bones attached to the to the walls and ceiling so you have like spiral patterns and like flowers and then um Along the, the walls, you have these arches made out of bones. And you have like a couple of, of priests in their robes um, standing at the, the end of the, the room. And it's fascinating. And it's like beautiful, but also really creepy. <laughs> and <laughs> Just so in I, the sweet spot. Like, yeah. And I feel like listening to, to Bradbury kind of, he had maybe a, a similar experience in Guanajuato, right? And it obviously stayed with him, but just, I don't know. It, it is interesting to think about how we like confront death and like our, our views on that. And I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? My gosh, Lucas, it's a, you have to just take a nice little children's movie and, and go all philosopher king on it. <laughs> Very explicitly, Bradbury is like writing the Halloween tree with with the idea of teaching us about how Halloween is a celebration of, of life and death. So I don't think it's off base to, you know, <laughs> raise the question. I suppose not. Oh, I guess one thing that's interesting about Bradbury is like he met a bunch of people. You know, he talks about uh, meeting Chuck Jones, obviously, and he was friends with he was like personal friends with Walt Disney. And they collaborated on Epcot and everything. Um, and he met Federico Fellini. Well, actually, so he wrote an article dissecting Fellini's work and comparing it to like the, the old horror masters, like uh, comparing his films to like The Mummy and stuff like that. And Fellini wrote him a letter saying, this is like the best analysis of my work I've ever read. If you're ever in Italy or Rome or wherever, come and visit me and he's like oh oddly enough me and my wife were planning on on traveling to rome 
like next month. And so they went and hung out and Fellini like took him on his film set and uh, hung out with him for like a week, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> Sick. But he, he says... Uh, Just go behind the scenes. He says uh, Fellini would uh, always tell people, don't tell me what I'm doing. I don't want to know. And uh, <laughs> Well, there you go. That fits perfectly with, uh, with his approach then about uh-huh. being intuitive. <clears throat> yep. My, my final quote from the man Bradbury himself. Oh, actually, I have one more after this. Um, is, and when you're done doing what you're do- doing, you'll know what you did. And that's the way to create. It's very important to not plan ahead. Let your intuition guide you and give you a passionate and wondrous time. So I, I feel like it, it's interesting that he talks so much about his creative process, particularly my view of the film is, I don't know, it goes hand in hand, right? Because it is, there is a sense of wonder to the film. They, there's great visuals and it's a, it's a pretty cool story. But I don't know, I guess I wish there was a little bit more of, of the intellect involved in, in that in the process of the problem solving of, I'm not really sure what I think it like could do better, but it doesn't necessarily feel cohesive thematically to me. Maybe no way. Like there obviously is that through line of, of the love saving him. And you know, you get to see some history Halloween anyways, uh, prove me wrong. Refute my point. No, cause this is a movie that's like just supposed to like evoke a foul feeling, right? Like, and that's what it does. Very much so that I get a glimpse of the uh, of that fall feeling, you know, it's it's fall time. Halloween's here. The whole romance of the season with the changing colors and the pumpkins and, and business. And that's uh, mm-hmm. and that's what it does. And that's what I never remember too much about it. But like I picked it like just for no reason in particular. Like I just thought it was a movie that like I hadn't seen in a long time and fit with the season. But so Mm -hmm. yeah, that was kind of surprising how, how much it did just kind of make you feel like a kid again. And (laughs) so it was good. Yeah. Like I, I do agree with all of your points. It, I think it does accomplish what Bradbury set out to do. So I, I guess I'm not, uh, being a fair critic because i do think you're supposed to meet a film where it's at right so i guess the the last thing i wanted to touch on then we can wrap up was so talking about you know the, the whimsy and, and the the fill of the film is it is an animated film right and it's kind of how it was conceived you know with that the story of him meeting chuck jones and them deciding hey yeah let's let's come up with an animated film we can do together yeah, it's got those uh, like Matt, said. Matt painting backgrounds to it, doesn't it? That like uh-huh. really stood out to me when I, because I think it's like from the first, very first, it's probably like the first thing you see. Yeah, I actually I don't really like the opening with just the the pan and scan on the matte painting style like view of the yeah. city. I think I actually found that probably a little weird too, in some way. Yeah, it's just so I, jarring it somehow. Might be yeah to to some effect it might be you know a. Uh, artifact of the time it was produced yeah. and also the budget it's just dated because it, it's definitely like a, a smaller you know like direct to vhs or direct to tv type feature as soon as like the characters come on right and you have the kids getting dressed in their costumes then it starts to work and the rest of the film visually works very well for me it, it is just kind of jarring that you know you open with the bradbury monologue 
and just like this still image as you slowly it feels like ken burn-esque right <laughs> uh, he's just like pan and scanning on historical photos it, i don't know i i feel like it, it's a definitely a very jarring way to start the film you know i would have preferred even just something like a, a gust of wind blowing leaves into town or it just feels too too stagnant too static and dead um especially you know at the you want to wow the audience with the first frame of your picture don't you or at least you know give them a sense of what it's about and i don't feel like it's representative of the the film as a whole because there's a bunch of life and vibrancy to the film that i don't feel like is is carried across in the first few shots my my quote i have from bradbury about the the animation of the film or animation as as a medium is mm -hmm. it's a wonderful way of showing things metaphorically indirectly in shorthand in haiku it, the story is suited to the medium right because you can show the halloween tree you can show them you know flying and mount shroud i feel like would be a hard character to pull off in live action just the the that whimsical metaphorical haiku-esque tone is probably like the main charm of the, the feature right it's just yeah no doubt it the autumnal vibes get your pumpkin spice latte and uh i don't know your halloween mask <laughs> thank you so much for listening to notes from the silver screen i hope you enjoyed this episode if you did, and know someone else who might, please share it. We'll be back right here in a few weeks with a new episode on Prey. Hey, Lucas, guess what, though? He's, do you, like... Are you still going to put in, like, clips from other stuff? In, uh -huh. For, like, an intro? If you, yeah. if you can, if you want to. You need to put in that that community like line from um at least where they talk about mexican halloween dia de los muertos or day of the dead is sometimes referred to as mexican halloween which is actually quite offensive to people familiar with mexican halloween as a sexual position put, put that <laughs> put that in there <laughs> it makes me laugh uh, <laughs> i'll see if i can find that yeah you can find it on youtube